The year is 1990. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. Welcome to My Marvelous Year 1990 Part 1. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I am joined today by my fellow 90s baby, Lil 90s kid, it's Zach Dean. How's it going, Zach? I wish you had told me ahead of time so I could make a cool 90s joke like, uh, what did people say? Well, you did just spell cool, K-E-W-L, and it did pop onto the screen in a very cool font, I have to say. Um, I'm holding up my spiral notebook with that cool S thing, you know, that you draw uh, with the, the, like, six straight lines, the parallel lines, a, you know? A recurring doodle, a school, a schoolboy's mm-hmm. doodle a school is your best, <laughs> is your best a, 90s reference. Visual, I did do those. Is that, ni- is that 90s specific? Like those, that little S kind of money doodle is that? I feel like that carried through the two thousands for me, but maybe that was just my nineties heritage coming with yeah, me. Yeah, maybe. Um, let me see. I don't know because I don't really associate with like nineties culture really, except like the late nineties, right? Because I was a baby. I was baby through nineties. Um, sure. It's like ninety eight. Here's what through I, like two thousand two is like. That's that's where I'm less like I was. I I was. That's when I things was got man. hot for you. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's when you became a real man. Yeah. Um, I I was '90s for me is Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. Mm-hmm. Oh, is, I, I had um, isn't it, so wild. Like twelfth grade, couldn't care yeah. less about sports. Never watched a single basketball game in my life. Yeah, I had a Michael Jordan jersey, like a Chicago Red Chicago Red Bulls. Just, it was just I, like, I just that called was them just Chicago the Red Bulls. Bull. Chicago Bulls. The Chicago jersey. Red Bulls. Oh <laughs> so you man, you can see how Branding much I know up. about sports. Clearly, clearly tones. Uh, but yeah, no, Bulls, GameCube, or not GameCube, Game mm. Boy, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, gave it to me, gave it to me fresh. And to uh, him, honestly, what's that? I said, give it to him, Ken. <laughs> give it to me, Ken. Ken Griffey Jr., my favorite baseball player of all time. The only baseball player, I will say, that if a story came out that he did, in fact, use steroids, I would be both surprised and uh, a little upset. Mm. The only baseball player I liked, where I liked that came out. when I was a kid, uh, kind of arbitrarily. And I'm a Cubs fan. Because I, I, uh, I collected baseball cards, even though I didn't watch baseball. I was a uh, Minnesota Twins. You're a sports collector. Minnesota Twins fan, baby. That was my... Minnesota Twins That fan. was the one I always like. That's not a terrible pick, yeah. I just pretended to love them when I was a kid just to uh, have like an offbeat choice because I didn't want to be, you know, just Red Sox because I'm from New England. That's a very... Right, right. That's a very Merge Records baseball team yeah. pick yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for an East Coast boy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Didn't they win the World Series like eight years ago? Yeah, the ago Twins were actually good in the 90s, uh, early 90s. You got those Kirby Puckett days. Um, yeah, they, they... I don't... If they didn't win, they definitely at least made a World Series. Um, but yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to spend the entire episode talking about our fond recollections of the 90s. Um, thank you for joining us for this Marvel Comics in the 90s reading experience. No, no, that's not what we're going to do. I'm Dave. He's Zach. We go through the Marvel Universe year by year, and we're entering 1990, okay? So we started in 1961. We read a curated list of the best, most essential comics from the origins to today. We're finally entering a new decade. Now, we're going to kind of enter this decade um, 
a, a little slow, right? We're gonna take it easy. We're gonna we're gonna a little boys to men it here, you know, kind of a little little set the scene, a little set the mood with like a late '80s transition into early '90s mm-hmm. Marvel Comics event. Axe of Vengeance, okay? So this is our 1990 Part 1 coverage of Axe of Vengeance. This comic is still very rooted in the 80s in the sense that stylistically it's there, but also it's literally started in the last months of 1989, okay? So it's a good, like, get us out of the 80s into the 90s kind of kickoff, I think. And then in 1990 Part 2, our next episode, we're going full Full 90s comics are here with the introduction of Cable, Rob Liefeld on New Mutants, Jim Lee on Uncanny X-Men, and we'll talk a little Excalibur as well. It's, All right? Yeah, it's, so that, it's that's interesting. It, it does feel like this this batch of comics specifically is like the encapsulation of like, hey, this is the new wave, right, of, of comics in comic writers. Like, not just Marvel comics, but like, because we've got Mark Bagley in here, like you said, Jim yep. Lee, Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, um... You know, just, like, the people who are going to define the 90s for, like, mainstream comics. Not necessarily, like, the best comics of the 90s, but the biggest comics of the 90s. Um, right. Yeah, it's, it's all right. here. So, Axe of Vengeance. Wait, wait, I have one, I have one more thing to say, uh, which is mm-hmm, that we need mm-hmm. to confess to a lie we've been telling, Dave. <laughs> which one? I don't know if we've made it to the audience, but we've definitely been telling it to ourselves, which is that we're going to get through the 90s in 2020. Because um, at this point, we're going to finish 1990 somewhere. Well, definitely not 2020. 2021 yes excuse me um Mm -hmm. because we were like yeah we we basically got through the 80s in uh in 2020 more or less and uh and i I think we'll uh, we'll probably do the same with the 90s Ooh, no i don't think so we're not even going to start 1991 until like that episode's coming out mid-march or something if i'm calculating Mm -hmm. it right i think uh Mm -hmm. i think we're looking for like (laughs) the 90s are gonna last well into 2022 which is uh well i think that's less i think that's less the fault of for those of you who have preconceived notions of what 90s comics are and are perhaps not looking forward to being stuck in the decade mm-hmm. <laughs> with the oh, reading club yeah. no, for an extended period of time, we're not going to be stuck in it for that long. We are going to move at our, our characteristic reasonable clip, but we 1990 will not start in 2021. Our coverage, I mean, this yeah, this is probably coming out circle March uh, because 89 is going to take us a minute to get through at the start of the year, right? So, yeah. but I hear what you're saying. You're right. We're probably we don't finish this by the end no, of 2021. We don't, but don't we worry, don't we're not going like, to we're not going to wallow in 90s comics. We here. start 1990, or yeah, we start 1991 halfway through May, <laughs> May 17th. Yeah. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, anyway, well, we got six episodes in 1990 to do. Yeah, this we do. Is a six part year. We do. Yeah, surprisingly, like there there are going to be some years. Some of these early years are packed, especially with like. Uh, X-Men is still just going to have, like, an enormous event every year. Spider-Man's going to start having these big events. Um, and then it's going to implode a little bit, and it will slow down. I think, what, like... I mean, I've been saying this left and right on on when people ask, but 1990 through at least 1992, probably in the 93, it's just as full as the 80s. There's just as much going on. There are just as many titles to look at. Is it literally just as good? Your mileage may vary, right? But there's stuff in here that's definitely going to compete. It's once we get to the 94 to 97 range, things start getting a little wonky. There are a few saviors in there, you know, a la my favorite Age of Apocalypse. But that's when, like, that's also when Marvel... It's not just a comics thing, too, and we'll talk about this when we get there, but it's like financially, fiscally, as a business, they were floundering, and then they started literally going bankrupt, okay? So that hits, that hits hard. We're not going to sit, we're not going to do a six-part 
1996 and figure out, you know, Marvel's New Age of Heroes when they were going bankrupt, okay? Yeah. But we are going to spend our time in the early 90s because there's good stuff, and it's interesting. And like you just said, there's a lot of new creative talent coming onto these books who will go on to, again, basically define the decade. So let's talk yes. Acts of Vengeance, all right? Acts of Vengeance is the first of its kind, I think, as a Marvel event in this universe where it is not, there is not an event issue. It is not a direct crossover where each chapter of the event yeah, plays out yeah, over the course of each issue. It is a theme. It is an idea, right? The Acts of Vengeance sort of plays out across like almost every title in the Marvel Universe, if not every title. And it's an idea of the villains, the main villains of the Marvel Universe, coming together and saying, we always go up against the same heroes. We're locked in a cycle mm-hmm. of, of getting our butts beaten by the same people. Let's let's vary this, okay? So the villains of the universe, the main players here are Doctor Doom, Kingpin, the Mandarin, rocking his most egregious costume. I think we could possibly ever imagine. <laughs> he looks. It is. He looks like a, a knockoff absurd. Magneto. Often, um, it's a bad Magneto. Speaking of bad Magneto, bad Magneto's here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not bad. Yeah, in we the didn't. Sense of we didn't miss poor. I, I feel like we kind of missed his. He's like, going bad now. His re heel turn. A little bit, like yeah, you gotta read, you gotta read some more Simonson New Mutants to get the full heel turn. Him with the Hellfire Club, uh, it is an oh, interesting oh, saga. Wrong it's Simonson. not perfect by any measure. <laughs> I was mad. I was like, no, forget that. But Louise Simonson, I'll, I'd read some Louise Simonson. I'm fully done with Walt at this Zach, point. But, Zach, yeah. we're we're done with your Simonson opinions. Mm. Listen, we've got some more Simonson comics. We literally have some in this episode to talk about. Oh, baby, we're I can't, all done. I can't wait to with your Simonson opinions. Can't wait to force you to listen to it. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to never Simon slam you into a wall <laughs> the next time oh, man, you tell I, I'm me. I'm excited. You don't like Are you going to defend these uh, these Fantastic Four issues? Of course, I'm going to defend them. Wild. They're great. All Wild. right. Okay. Now, right. as we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Um, but so yes, Magneto has basically at this point said like, "All right, you know what? Forget it. Me trying to raise these baby new mutants has gone badly. Yeah. I'm more or less going to revert to type." He's not fully there yet. He's not like a hundred percent there. But I mean, basically, you know, yeah. he's part of the villain group in Acts of Vengeance. Um, Red Skull is among the team. The Wizard shouts to the Wizard making, For making his, tr- his way in way here. way did- out kicking his coverage <laughs> way above his way out kicking. Yeah. <laughs> Does not does not fit in, does not belong, and I think he knows it, which is kind of fun. And they're all brought together by a mysterious figure. Zach, how mysterious was this figure to you? Did you ever figure out who it was? Yeah, because it's, it's Loki. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the widow's peak and everything. He's just wearing a suit instead of, you it know, is, green. Thou arst correct. Yeah. It is Loki. Uh, although, okay. uh, but yeah. so, so the thing is, the issues we have in, in the reading list, like he said, it's not an event. Right, like it is not. Here's the six main issues. Um, it's more just like here's the vibe for the year, <laughs> right? So yeah, yeah, right. So like we miss some of the big plot points. Like I think the Captain America issues we read pick up the beginning of it really well, and you get a really good taste. We, do, we of, don't miss Zach. Zach, this is very important. Oh, we don't miss anything. We don't miss anything. We intentionally we don't miss a thing. We intentionally overlooked. As my marvelous year shared universe character uh-huh. Stephen Tyler. The what is he? The horse Na- naysayer. The naysayer uh-huh. would say, "We don't want to miss a thing." Okay, mm-hmm. don't wanna, you get it? Don't want to close my eyes. Don't want to go to sleep. Don't you can't close your eyes when you're reading a comic. It does not work. Okay, but we don't miss a thing. What we do is we curate through these these comics. And in Acts of Vengeance, yes, there's a full reading order for every comic that you can find over on ComicBookHerald.com. But we said, I said. Let's read the good stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're right. We don't we don't literally read everything that happens here. There, some of the bigger, like, 
I guess eventy type stuff happens in the pages of Avengers. Um, I, I, I think, don't like those comics that much, yeah, and it, you get the context from other yeah, issues I th- here. I think okay? so. I, I, so my my point was just basically uh, we don't read the Avengers in the West Coast Avengers wrap up for this. Um, and uh, West Coast Avengers fifty five is a good way up. to tie all this yeah. off. A final issue that I did not. I, I, it should now be on our I, I list, so by the, the time list. you're We're hearing this, let's say it. it's there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to make you look like a fool, oh, okay. a clown, because I didn't tell you. I, I did just buy the omnibus of that run, so, like, I have it. I should have read it by now, and I just haven't. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so, like... I would think you'd be falling all over yourself th- for there, a chance There's to a fair amount missing, but this, this quote-unquote event is literally, like, 55 issues included in it, right? Like, it's very big. Um. So, you know, if you if you're digging it, it's kind of one of these things where it's just like, hey, whatever you comic you like, just go read that because uh, it probably will be good, right? Like, if you if you're interested in what Damage Control is doing or Power Pack or Quasar, right? Like, it's involved if you want to go read those. So, um, and the and the general vibe, like you said, the Acts of Vengeance, it's a very fun concept because it pitches. You know, villains that we don't often see go up against certain heroes mm-hmm. and basically saying, okay, what would that be like? Yeah. All right. And we're going to talk about these in detail, but like, so for example, Daredevil faces off against Ultron, okay? Yeah. A, a oh, battle you would not yeah. regularly see. Punisher versus Doctor Doom, right? You get some fun matchup type stuff that is is fairly novel in Marvel at this point. I think now, in, in we're recording this in 2021, like Marvel has beaten this horse and then some, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, Equestrian Friends were harmed in the making of that statement, and there's probably a better one I should start using. Uh, but, like, it, they've overused the, Horse. ooh, we're going to do uh, a zany lineup. We're going to bring in a zany mismatch. Like, that has gone way, way, way overused, I think, at this point. In 1989 and 1990, that was not quite the case, uh, which makes Acts of Vengeance, I think, actually it's, just fun conceptually. Yeah, I, I agree. Although, I, I would say, like, it's not that unusual for Spider-Man to, like, pop into the X-Men verse and, you know, like, fight Juggernaut, right? Like, we, we've seen Juggernaut, that Juggernaut issue where he fights Spider-Man. It's kind of like Marvel's. I think Marvel has been. Yeah, it's two issues though, and it stands out as a as an all timer. I think in many ways because mm-hmm. it is not your regular Spider Man back. It it's not a thing that has never been done before. Yeah. Go back to Stan, Jack, and Steve, and you'll find some. Yeah, right. But again, on this level, on this scale, it's looking. At, it's literally looking at like, well, what are the examples that basically that we've maybe never haven't done. been done yeah, before? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and then it's it's finding can we get some mileage out of that? And I think. Often very successfully. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start with Captain America. We read issues 365 to 367, a part of this run. Again, this is post the Captain Saga. We've got Mark Grunewald still writing. We've got Kieran Dwyer on pencils throughout a lot of this. Danny Bolandi inks. Bob Sharon colors. Jack Morelli letters, at least on issue 365. Um, issues 365 and 366 will give you a little scene setting with the villainous cabal and their plans. Mm-hmm. They yeah. try to get the controller to control Namor, uh, who then, or the Red Skull tries to get the controller to control Namor, who then they sick on Captain America. It's all very stock, familiar comic book stuff. It fits into the Grunewald run because, again, we have the return of the skull. The issue I love is 367. But before we talk 367, uh, what what were you going to say about these? First I, I, well, issues? one, I, I think these are the best we read for this group. I think these just work so well. And, like, man, I adore this run. I'm just like, every, every time we dip back into this, I love this. And I have been trying to actually pick up and read more of this. I have read a fair amount, even though... Um, I wasn't caught up to this point yet, past what we've read before, and, like, he's just, he just gets comics the way <laughs> I like them, right? Like, they're just uh, well-paced, interesting ideas. He, he's he's not always taking the biggest swings, 
right? With like big conceptual ideas. But like, I think he has interesting ideas involved here. The artist he collaborates with, I really love Karen Dwyer's, Kieran Dwyer's work here. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone I don't know if I've seen before or at least noted. Did you, do you get, um, what's his name? Um, The preacher artist, uh... Not Steve Dillon. Dillon. Do you get Dillon vibes from him? Because I kind of do. Like the 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 faces specifically. These kind of like the the way he zooms in on uh, people's like furrowed brows and the the red skull's facial expressions. I was getting like Steve Dillon vibes this whole time. That's interesting. I yeah. didn't I didn't think of that while I was reading it, but I do like his art. I, now I do want to say I, I think you're right. Grunwald he, obviously at this point writes a very good Captain America. We've read a lot of very good issues. He knows what he's doing and he's going to know what he's doing on this run basically forever. One thing I really like about Cap before we get to the issue that is an all-time classic, I think, is Grunewald does the thing that I think all the best creators do, and most of these runs that we pick do, where they say, like, yeah, I'm still going to tell my Cap story, yeah. right? I'm still going to develop Red Skull. I'm going to develop his connections to Crossbones, who he's using as muscle here. I'm still going to develop Captain America and Diamondback's relationship, Diamondback X Serpent Squad. And then, oh, guess what? I'm going to do some really good backups at the end of each issue that are Serpent Society, um, what is it, King Cobra, Versus Mr. Hyde. Getting, those are really they're good. Really and I good. don't care about exactly. those characters. Exactly. Yeah. Serpent Society. I was just like, I, I groaned when I first saw that. I was like, oh, the backup story is going to be about the Serpent Society and mm-hmm. Cobra's insecurities, whatever. Because like, who is funnier than the Serpent Society? They are the most like, they, they almost feel like parody where it's just like, yeah, our superhero things. We all identify as snakes and we just walk around this dressed like fully as snakes. Right? Like. And like very specific too. Like they all have their guide, their pocket guidebook to the type of snake that they want to be. Yeah, and then like, they have to own. Like, no, I'm a puff adder. I can only do X, Y, Z. And like, they, there's shots <laughs> there's here. Of there's like drawings of uh, of just like three or four of them. They're just hanging out at the base, like chit chatting. But they're all in full snake garb. And like one of them is even like yeah. slithering around in like a full body suit. <laughs> like they're very committed yeah. to the bit. One of the drawings that cracked me up like nothing else is when Cobra. Uh, is sneaking into the base to like get Hyde or something because he, he's trying to get his self-esteem back um, by beating up Mr. Hyde. Uh, you know, he has this rivalry with him, but he sneaks in and because they they partner way back and yeah. I want to say Journey into Mystery Thor For, yeah sure, forever ago first yeah him. yeah and like. I didn't know this about him, but apparently he's got, like, flexible bones, like a snake, I guess. Yeah. So, like, yeah. there's just shots of him squeezing into chimneys that, especially being taken, like, by surprise that he yeah. could do this, are so funny out of context. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I love this run. I, I think he just gets Captain America's voice right. Like, Captain America's not perfect here, but he's not like a fully stiff jerk, right? Like he, he kind of bounces this thread. I mean, what like, do you what do you mean he's not perfect? I guess what what are you uh, looking for? I mean, for like that he, isn't he is a little bit of a jerk to um ooh, what's her name? Uh Diamondback. Yes, Diamondback, like he, he's kind of He's a little with her. moralizing, he's a little like yeah. you're a villain, you know, I, I, which on one hand is true. Yeah. <laughs> she was literally just part of the service society. He does a good but job. But he's not super nice about he it. He does a good job of writing characters with flaws. And with flaws that are like I like them and I'm wincing because they're making mistakes, right? And, like... Sure. I feel like Claremont doesn't... Do, Claremont writes characters with flaws that I don't... I don't know. I don't I don't feel it as often. And I, I don't know if that's just because I'm not, like... I, I It's so heightened and... You melt. don't feel what? Like, I, I don't feel the, um, the tension of, like... Ugh, I love Wolverine, but, like, he's really screwing things up right now, right? Like... Man, I want him to get back on the right track, and you know, like you're you're kind of rooting for his journey of like he's in a bad place right now, and he's making bad decisions, and I 
you know, like I emotionally feel a pull to see him like straighten things out. Like I do with John Walker all the time. That was like one of the strengths of John Walker is that like that guy was constantly screwing up and making mistakes and figuring stuff out. And I was just like rooting for him. Right. And like Captain America is not quite the same here. He's not as misguided or misled as, uh, John Walker. I don't. But, like, I don't know that X Men's the best comp there, though, because you are when you're spinning it, twenty it's a, plates yes. versus spinning yeah, two. It, it's pretty different. Yeah, I was just trying to think of character other writers who write characters with flaws, and he's the first one because you know Claremont's clearly interested in writing flawed characters, right? Like for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, but but I think Claremont's going for a different goal necessarily. I, I think he's trying to write a much bigger, loftier story. Um, but that does just mean that I, I don't like as emotionally connect to the characters sometimes. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I just uh, I really love this. Um, Kieran Dwyer, do you know he was John Byrne's stepson for a while during this time period? <laughs> <laughs> just just for a while, huh? Yeah, well, John Byrne married his mom for a little bit. <laughs> wow. Okay. No, I did not know that. Yeah, I just found that. Man, it's pretty funny. Always weird when a colleague marries your mom <laughs> mid uh, job. Exactly. I gotta say, I, I don't know if it overlaps while they they were at Marvel, but uh, yeah, that's kind of awkward. Um, that is imagine. kind of amazing. Um, all right. So, yes, I think Grumwald's doing great. Yeah. I think the Serpent Society stuff is shockingly fun. Yeah. Again, I just it, – it's goofy, but also Grunwald is so – he's so earnestly leaning into, like, making them mm. an important thing in Cap and taking them seriously that it's kind of hard not to it's, play it's along. It's kind of working, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it kind of works, which is, again, shocking. Issue 367, I think, is, is an all-timer. Yeah. It's an all-timer especially. So within the Acts of Vengeance, and, and we kind of have what, – what's going to happen is if you read these in single series increments, you know, if you read Cap 365 to 367, you're going to kind of, like, get a feel for how Acts of Vengeance is progressing as well, mm-hmm. okay? So they've unleashed a variety of heroes. They're fighting across landscapes. Like, Magneto and Red Skull have been all over the place doing different things. But one thing you see early on is Magneto asks the group of villains, he's like, hey, is that – is that Red Skull? Is that like the same dude who was here in World War II? And uh, and he gets confirmation, mm-hmm. right? And Magneto obviously has the revelation here that like, wow, I'm partnered up here with an actual Nazi who was, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, persecuting my people who, you know, Max um, Max Eisenhart, as he was known at the time, was imprisoned yeah. in a concentration camp yeah. as, as a young boy, Magneto, right? So he's like, well, this can't stand. And issue 367 is him basically saying, Magneto saying like, yeah, forget this whole fighting heroes thing, right? Right now, I'm going to kill the Red Skull. Uh, I'm taking the Red Skull. And it's just a battle between the two. Like, that's most of the issue. It's incredible. It's ba- it's so I mean, good. it's barely a battle. because uh, Well, it kind of is because Red Skull has all these traps. I mean, Red, Red Skull devices, runs away. You know? But, yeah. Um, yeah, I love the... Um, so, yeah, Magneto bursts through the wall, which at first is really funny because I, I wasn't expecting that. I forgot the kind of, you know, Nazi connection here, right? So I was just, like, thinking Magneto was coming to chat with him about their villain plans, and it was just like, man, really aggressive way to come through the wall. Um, And then it's great. Like, Magneto is very cool here, where he just very calmly, like, states why he's here. Is just like, so you are the same guy. You worked for Hitler, right? And then Red Skull lays this whole, like, whole thing out about, like, you know, we're not so different, you and I, we both believe in, you know, or a certain type of superiority, you believe in mutant superiority, and you've killed to protect that, and you would squash humans if you, you know, thought that'd be an end to your goal, blah, 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 like, I think we can find common ground, and, like, I think Grunwald pulls a good trick, which is, like, Red Skull sounds a little convincing to maybe, yeah. like, a villain, right? Like, Magneto might be so twisted about 
you know, his, like, mutant superiority, that, like, he sells it that it's not the wildest thing that Magneto is going to come over, so that it's a great punch when, uh, when Captain, Captain America, when Magneto is just like, forget that, Nazi scum, and, uh, and attacks yeah, him, and is just, yeah. like, absolutely having none of it, right? And then, yeah, great fight. Um, Red Skull keeps, like, unleashing Red Skull robots on him, these, like, androids, and I love Magneto just keeps ripping them apart, and, uh, and he says something like, um, he mentions that, uh, Red Skull uses fake android versions of himself just like Doctor Doom, and, uh, and, like, compares them both to, like, needing, needing the, um, like, wanting to surround themselves with inferior people, right? Like, they, they keep lesser versions of themselves around to feel better about themselves, which is, like, a fun little... Well, that's why I keep all my Dave bots around. Right, yeah. I do keep a closet full of Dave bots, and it's all so I can feel like the big master man. Um, not to, not to just, reference just so you a, can also a Nazi. So you can, like, open up your closet door and just be like... Hey, you suck, man. Yeah, yeah. When I get mad at myself, hey, you have some robots to take it out on. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a good, it's very well character, like very good character writing. Yeah. Um, but then Magneto, after he chases down Red Skull, he rather than kill him, he pulls in Edgar Allan Poe's cask of Amontillado yeah. and locks him in brick by brick, leaves him water and like just a little bit of air so that Red Skull is imprisoned. It's it's deep, so deep, perfect. It's so that good. Shot. There's because he's just like he has him deep underground in this pitch black room full of gallons of water and that's it, um, and the only way out is just a hatch like up through the ceiling, just a uh, a long pipe, and uh, and Magneto just like vanishing up that that uh, not pipe with the words for it, just that tunnel. Magneto like flying up that tunnel with the light vanishing behind him as he like damns him to this uh, this experience is so chilling and so good and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have to keep reading, reading this run and, like, find out what happens. Like, I'm I'm so invested in this. And the coolest thing about this Grunewald run is that I'm, like, absolutely adoring it. And every time I look, I'm just reminded that there's so much of it, right? Like, I just yeah. feel like I can... It, there's so much of this to read. It, it's, like, uh, it's very exciting just knowing that he wrote this for literally 10 years and that I can just kind of keep dipping in and out. He did, like, 124 issues of this. It's absolutely wild. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, this one definitely stands out, though. It is good stuff. Yeah, uh, right. Again, great for Magneto fans. I think Magneto Nazi Hunter is a thing that, like, we all know we love, yeah. but don't actually get enough of. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> And this is maybe while. one of the best examples yep. of that of that idea, okay? But, so that's Cap. Let's move now into Uncanny X-Men. We were at issues 256 to 258. This is definitely the most Mandarin you're going to get uh, of the Mandarin as one of this villainous cabal. It is also most famously... Uh, a huge, huge Betsy Braddock, Psylocke story, and it's by Chris Claremont with art by Jim Lee. So this is like the most we've seen of Jim Lee interiors. He's inked here by Scott Williams, longtime inker, and colorist Glynis Oliver, letters by Tom Orzakowski. Now, there's a lot to unpack mm -hmm. with what happens with <laughs> yep. Psylocke and Betsy Braddock. Um, it's a complicated, complicated story arc. In terms of the premise here, okay, it's actually, it's probably like, it's one of the loosest acts of vengeance kind of things, you know, because although the Mandarin plays a part here, like kind of everything that's happening is superfluous to the acts of vengeance idea, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. in many ways yeah. where it's just like um, you have, uh, what is it, Matseo uh, Suriyaba shows up as an, as an uh, emissary of the hand basically saying to Mandarin, hey, we've captured Betsy Braddock. We're going to make her your weapon, your living uh, lady Mandarin, essentially, with all her Psylocke abilities. We're going to make her a weapon of the hand. We want you to take on the hand 
is your own personal Mandarin army, okay? So, like, that's that's kind of the premise for why these parties gather together. And Betsy, for the, like, we didn't read these specific issues in X-Men because there's a lot of X-Men, and as I've said a gazillion times, we, if you dig it, read, read the full Claremont so run. so much X-Men in 1989, right? And this is 1990. This is, this is the end. A lot happens. We, lot we happens. skipped so much. This is only December 1989, and we missed, like, 12 issues and we read so much well of yeah i mean it starts shipping by month it starts shipping it's twice a month baffling I mean, how much stuff. yeah it's crazy the big thing that happens that we missed is betsy and the x-men go through the siege perilous okay and uh without getting into the semantics of what that means basically they all sort of the the australian outback x-men they go through this deus ex machina siege perilous that's the wrong Latin. But anyway, they go through the Siege Perilous, and they all kind of lose themselves. They wind up in different areas. And in Betsy's case, she is, like, unconscious and gets, you know, captured by the hand here, right? And they then convert her or try to convert her to the Lady Mandarin, mm-hmm. okay? Now, the truly wild thing that happens, because that'd be one thing, right, is, like, okay, they're going to manipulate Betsy and mind-wipe her and make her a villain, mm-hmm. okay? That's sure. that's one thing, where it gets truly bonkers is we bring Mojo and Spiral and the body shop back into the fray. Because Betsy okay? Braddock now, has, you has remember, a tie. Yeah, okay, go on. No, it, I was. if you remember, we read this, these issues, but Mojo and and uh, Spiral, they did do work on Betsy like in the past. Remember, they replaced her eyes yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with their own camera lenses, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the issues offhand, but we did read them. And so, like, they have ties to this character. What they do as Betsy's going through all of this mental, like, is it happening? What's real? She's going through a whole psychic, um, you know, kind of, like, transformation is they change uh, her skin color and her body. They they transfer her, Betsy's essence. I mean, essence. her ethnicity. <laughs> Right, like her ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. No, they transfer her from a white British woman to um, an Asian, and I don't know the. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I I probably should be able to find Japanese. Uh, Japanese. Japanese, and it's going to come up later, and this won't spoil anything. But this is a person. They transfer her to Quanan. Um, an individual, right? So it's Japanese individual. And Betsy then becomes, like, her essence is now inside this Japanese woman. And now she's, like, the quote-unquote ninja assassin uh-huh. of the Mandarin, okay? Uh, this is obviously something that I think we look at now. And there's a lot of good analysis and writing on this where it's like, well, that's messed up. <laughs> that's that's really wild. And there's a lot to unpack. It, yeah. Um, I, I, the, thing, the thing that, like, makes that messy for me is that I'm mostly just like, I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I, I don't, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around, like, what the... Per- well, the why, the why of it that gets used most critically yeah. is, um, is the, just like, yes, Psylocke is sexier when she is this ninja assassin wearing a thong all the time like Elektra. Yeah. I think that is the, but, but that is the, like, yeah, just, Marvel saw yeah. the sex appeal of this and they did it for that reason as opposed to the kind of frilly, fluffy, maybe more home. I mean, she's still like a literal supermodel, you know, in character, but like, you know, the, the design of Betsy in this primitive. Yeah. The girl next door. British woman, kind of right. Thing. Well, okay. But like, that's the, that's the like, no, no, well, but what, that's I mean, they, you could have changed her personality to just have her be like, a very sexually forthright person and start wearing a, you know, a leather thong without like being sure. like, you're an Asian woman now. So I, I don't get, I I mean, it's, it's just a little, it's like Cla- Claremont likes doing this. He likes turning white people into uh in different ethnicities. He's a little, he's a little fast and loose with it because he did this back in New Mutants exactly, as well. Yeah. We remember yeah. with like Tom Corsi and what is it? Sharon Friedlander Wild um, in the Demon Bear saga. Those names. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know if I got the lady's name right, but uh, I, think I, was, I think I was close. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, he transfers them from. I mean, what are they? They're they're both white, yeah, I think, yeah, and yeah. they both get transferred mystically to Native American yep. ethnicities. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Like it's it's a thing where it's kind of like okay, don't totally know it's why like, I, or what I, we're I doing. I don't there. immediately go like, oh, this is awful because I'm mostly just like. I guess it's mostly confusion. I, I think okay, initially, so, so, um, yeah. I, I think the thing with, well, I just want to make one yeah, quick please, point here please. too, is the, one of the hardest things with this transformation is I, I didn't even know as an X-Men fan who came to the comics later. Like I assume, I thought Psylocke was Asian for my, like, you know, mm-hmm. most of my yeah, comics right, right, right. awareness life. Like I thought like, Oh, that's Psylocke. She's an Asian character on the X-Men. Like in, in theory, that's a good thing for, like, the representation of the team, right? And we're going to see that with Jubilee in this era as well. Like, yeah, good. Like, get more Asian women as part of the mutant heroes, right? That's a good thing for Marvel. Um, There's an argument to be made there that, like, in that regard, it's actually a very good thing. Uh, I think the tricky, really, part of it that needs to be worked out and and dealt with with care is, okay, but you're taking a, a woman who's lived her entire life with the privilege of being a white British woman, and now you're putting her in a person of color body without the intent to actually explore what that means. It's more just like, hey, she looks cool now, yeah, right? Like pr- that's probably that's a little mostly what the story of becomes. like exotic. I don't know, isn't it? Because yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely Cl- some Claremont, Claremont, and like Miller has this a little bit. Like they definitely are just interested in uh, in Asian like Japanese culture from a, a slightly like you know. It, exoticism way or what's the word i'm looking for yeah it just kind of i mean maybe a bit but like claremont claremont seems pretty genuinely invested and interested in not not even just like asian culture but in learning about other cultures i mean the the references and the way he talks about it it feels like someone who's really curious and exploring and and again like too don't don't discount a a american quote-unquote an american comic like this you know the x-men like bringing that knowledge to a lot of different readers who would not otherwise be exposed to it. I actually think there's some value there, um, whether or not it's perfect or not. And, and right, you could definitely have more people of color helping the story yeah. to get to a point where it's more authentic. I think that would be the the next piece of it that needs to happen, right? And Marvel still needs to get better about that. Um, but well, in this instance, I, I don't think... I don't think it's with nefarious intent. Again, Jim Lee himself is an Asian man, right? So, I like again, he's the one designing this. Yeah, so it's like, I don't think there's nefarious, like, bad acting here. It's something you could look at now and be like, oof, okay, let's unpack. No, no, I, I no, I, I definitely don't get that vibe. At worst, I'm like, the, the, thing with Cla- <laughs> the thing with Claremont is that his themes, to me, are often too muddy for me to feel like I have a good, good enough grip to, um, like, critique them, you know, like, cr- critically in that way, right? Because, like, I might grok what's going on with his stories but like thematically i often have a hard time getting a grasp on what he's like interested in because they it does it the, they flit they flits around from so many different things the thing i didn't the thing i expected least about chris claremont and x-men when i finally sat down and did the whole bench right a, a number of years ago was you i get the cochram era i get the burn era i get the x-men stories within that once you get out of that increasingly into the 80s i never anticipated how surreal and how weird his writing and his storytelling often becomes, you know? Like, it becomes just very, like, it is. It's this almost ethereal thing. Like, these acts of vengeance issues, again, you've got Jim Lee Art. It's grounded. It's not like it's hard to follow. It's, well, but okay. it's a very uh, strange yeah, story. Yeah, it, that's true. Let, let's get back to the art in a second, because I think that's important to talk about. But, like... Jim Lee's not quite Jim Lee yet, so yeah. Yeah, we'll I, Jim Lee's somebody that I'm, like, I have mixed feelings on, because I, um, I feel like they... 
they he dominates the house style of comics for a long time um and he's very good at it what do you mean like dc yeah he's literally their art director exactly like through the through the (laughs) 2000s his style just feels like the thing that everybody's trying to do right or at least like copying uh and i think he pulls it off okay even though it's not my favorite i think it is a very boring style to rip off most of the time um you think jim lee is boring no i think it's boring as a like i i don't know it's it's not like this very sharp dark um villain like it's 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 like trying to draw the word badass (laughs) right like every character is just like no mean and grizzled like including the heroes right like all the heroes have snarls on their face they all have you know all the villains have these big wicked smiles right like I, I I I think he's just a very like intense <laughs> artist. I don't know. Well, well, this is like the first time I've read anything of his pre like I don't know Batman. His like Batman stuff in the the two thousands. I mean, Jim Lee Batman Hush is is definitely a different. Yeah, uh, he's a different person. It's fifteen yeah. years later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'll, when I'll we're, be... when you're reading that verse, what he's doing on X Men here, I I would say that's a mischaracterization. Okay. Yeah. Of that... his art, I, I think he's quite good at facial expressions. I mean, I'll be I, curious I didn't, to see. Wait, I didn't say he was bad at facial expressions. That's, that is, that's not what I... you just said. He was stuck in in making people look in in kind of one note, like you know, people are all, all the heroes are grizzled and all the villains have egregious smiles. No, I think I mean I think that that is the like the style. He has, that he has jubilee are. lapping. He has funny moments. He has individuals being uh, upset. I, I think he sells it even at this point in his career. I don't so know. I mean, I, I think the I same thing about McFarland. I think McFarland has like a way he draws people's faces that is like very distinct to him, right? And uh, I think like he he has you know big eyes and uh almost a cartoony look to like normal humans and then his villains all have these like enormous sharp teeth and you know he kind of has a a style to him that people like emulate and don't do quite as well as him so so i i like generally liked the art here like maybe it sounds like i'm being negative i'm not um i think it didn't help that the first issue we read of his of his art is this incredibly disorienting mojo verse kind of thing because i think this whole issue is a little disorienting um but I think that is a mixture of his art and uh, in the story, like the actual writing of this. I mean, th- this issue is intentionally disorienting. Yeah. That's what I was saying, yeah. is how surreal Claremont can be at times. Now, it gets out of that once we get out of 256 and Psylocke is transformed into this agent of the Hand and the Mandarin. The next couple issues basically follow up on like, okay, how are they going to use her as a weapon? She runs into Wolverine and Jubilee. Uh, Jubilee had just freed Wolverine from the clutches of the Reavers in the Australian Outback, so he's beat to hell. He's seeing uh, visions of Nick Fury and Carol Danvers that are like guiding him through things in, in kind of a fun way as his like, kind of like his ghosts of Christmas, you know, future and present and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we get a lot of good Jubilee Wait, in this, so honestly. Did- um, who we just that, saw that was clearly something we just skipped, you know, and I was fine just riding it. But wh- why is Captain Marvel and Nick Fury? Why are they in his head? Uh, because they're characters that he knows. I mean, he has a, okay. A it's not like they both have more of a like sort of a military or... background that okay. he they are giving him sort of commands and and taking control in a way that like kind of you know guides him through when he's terribly terribly wounded and you know on, nearly dead for Wolverine. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so they they run into Psylocke, they run into the Hand, they fight in Madri- in Madripoor. Yep. And uh, long story short, they basically they need to find a way 
to get Psylocke to realize who she is. Wolverine somehow recognizes her, even though she has literally changed ethnicities. I guess she was making a classic Betsy face yeah. <laughs> or something. Somehow he knows. Um, but of course, they free her. You get some good Mandarin fights. They're weird, wild issues. They have a huge legacy. Um, again, shouts to Claremont and the creative team for being like, all right, what's this event theme? Cool. Here's my X-Men yeah, story never, that's going to somehow fit in while also just it does, being 100%. It kind of does it, though. It never really talks about, like, like Loki's plan has nothing to do with this. <laughs> you know, like, it really feels only tangentially related in that like the mandarin is involved and he's also involved in x of vengeance um yeah i mean he kind of shows up at the end and it's yeah. it's one of the more tangentially involved ones um my my favorite approach to these tie-ins actually is uh louis simonson writing x factor mm-hmm. we don't read those issues here i don't even know if they're in marvel unlimited yet but she wants nothing to do with acts of vengeance <laughs> and it's so transparent she has these little mini short sequences of apocalypse fighting loki and apocalypse's dialogue is all super meta and it's all like f acts of vengeance i want nothing to do with this <laughs> everyone's acting out of character I'm, I'm above this and it's it's really good apocalypse stuff um I, it's worth reading just those sequences if you are so inclined uh, yeah so yeah the um the, th- the thing with betsy i just wanted to point out I have no context for Psylocke, and Psylocke's very new to me through the club, right? I don't know her very much at all. So my, I think, I can't remember the exact order, but one of my first exposures was the 2018 series Fallen Angels, where I was like, (laughs) which is why I just love that series. It's my my favorite series of 2018. Um, You've said many times, uh, 2019. Oh yeah, you're right, 2019. Um, I mean, you know, hell, it's one of the best series of 2018 as well. But it uh, (laughs) does... It was so good, and it was on the last. It retroactively year's pushed out my number one for 2018. <laughs> what was really funny is I was reading all those Dawn of X books for a while, and you know, Fallen Angels is like, yeah, it's Psylocke, she's a Japanese woman, and then like I get the Excalibur issue, and it's like Psylocke, the British woman, excuse me, right? And I was genuinely right. like, all right, I'm missing something here. There's there's something weird about this. <laughs> Here's what I will say too about Betsy. The thing I definitely did not realize. Is like, we've known Betsy Braddock as X-Men readers, if you're reading through this time period, from like, what, like 1983 to 1990? Like, it's not like, it's not like she's white for a minute. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, you've read a lot of comics with white Betsy Braddock as a British woman. Um, So this this change in ethnicity is, I just, again, it's like, I don't totally know how to unpack it. There's a lot of good analysis. Maybe we can include some of it in like our Patreon post and in the Slack here. Um, for those of you who follow us on, on patreon.com slash my Marvel this year, um, for some some smarter folks than myself who can actually unpack the weirdness of this. Cause I I don't think I'm alone in thinking like it's kind of a mixed bag. It's not an obvious wrong. It's not an obvious um mistake. It wouldn't happen now. It definitely would not happen now. Um but at you know at the time it's like yeah it did actually create um well, a, I mean, most, mostly because Asian just protagonist like, just, on the X. Just write in a new Asian woman if that's really what you want. <laughs> I mean, if, if for no other reason than it's just weird. Like, I, I, I don't. Th- there's a weird. There's a real weirdness to it, and there's a real like, why, why Betsy, why Betsy? Yeah, for this? I, you know, like there's that. It's, it's really not like I look at this and I'm just like, uh, yikes, problematic. Like, fam, this is this is a real problem. I'm no because I mean no. maybe maybe someone can lay out. A better argument it's mostly that i just kind of look at it and i'm just like i don't know what this accomplishes and i feel like you could avoid the uh the the questions really easily right because it's just like if you want if you want a cool japanese assassin just uh write one like <laughs> you could just do one right like and if you want to yeah. get rid of betsy braddock just have her fade into the background right like i i don't know 
Or if you just want her to be cool, just make her cool without making her Japanese. It's so strange. Um, yeah, there. Are, I mean, one. Well, I guess one thing to think about too would be like, what if, what if just you introduced Quanon here as a mutant assassin, a Japanese mutant assassin, and she becomes a new X Men player, right? And she is uh, her own person in her own right, or, with her own character and experience. Or you could do a little. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is also a problem, but like, I think it would probably be fine. Uh, the Betsy Braddock kind of having a Captain Marvel uh, rogue thing where they're they're sharing a body, right? Like, <laughs> they both get smushed in, and I don't know. I, I Soul, 1990. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I guess I don't want to, like, armchair quarterback it. I'm just, it's mostly, like, what I, I, I was trying to, to say, I think I get distracted, where it's just, like, I often don't know what Claremont is interested in, like, what kind of a story he's interested in telling, like, big picture with characters you know like i feel like in the moments he has moments that he wants to do and he has like smaller stories but like very often i have a hard time like I, latching onto something where i'm just like hey this is what you're into right like you're interested I mean, I, in I, I... redemption arcs or you're interested in the struggle of this one thing because i just feel like he's well he's not he's not one thing he's interested in the never-ending story of Marvel's mutants. I mean, I think this right, is true but for like, the man today when he can't let the franchise go, essentially. Right, yeah. Is that like he's... Claremont never had, here's what I'm building to, here's what I'm doing. In small pockets, he does for sure. Yeah. There's elements yeah, I can yeah. talk about. But like, he never had, oh, here's exactly where we're going because he never saw it ending. He he was just going to do X-Men forever. And I think that's kind of how he approached yeah, it. Yeah, which is maybe part of the reason that like the, it frustrates me and like doesn't connect with me because I, I don't... I often feel like I, I'm a little adrift in the like what what kind of a story you're trying to tell because it's like he's clearly interested in bigger things than just like yeah i'm just telling like a fun superhero story right like he has he has bigger ambitions than that but then it's so much stuff that i i feel like it just it, it becomes a little bit noise right like i can't find the signal through all the noise and then there are moments where it starts landing like inferno i feel like i'm starting to understand like dialing in on maddie's story and gene gray's story you know, and like yeah. that's why that works for me so well. But then we... Inferno, Inferno is a clear endpoint for a number of characters. I right. think that yeah. you could see. Okay, this was an endpoint. Ileana Rasputin this was an right? endpoint like she... for, for yeah. You understand exactly. like thematically what he's trying to do there a little bit, right? Like there, there's a larger push at work to do something. Like Anna Senti, right? Like she, I think she's a good contrast. Where like you always feel like you kind of get what questions she's asking, right? And she might not land on any conclusions, but she's playing with ideas, and it like it feels like pretty clear what like arenas she's dancing in yes but you're also pitting now again solo hero book yeah. versus massive team world building hero universe and and they are doing very different things i mean i think the criticism or the the general idea here i don't even know if you mean it as criticism I, that this I, I think book I, is a drift right now yeah. is 100 percent accurate that's what i've been saying post inferno x-men is very much adrift it's just going anywhere and everywhere this book gets weird and it doesn't it clearly doesn't quite know what it's doing but i also think claremont was just like i can just tell x-men stories forever right, which, and i which can talk about whatever the heck i want is a criticism for me because then that's just like you're doing a soap opera like literally like a daily you know, yes as the, oh yeah but i mean like, calling but, calling x-men a soap opera is not controversial no no i know Everyone it's not but like doing as the world turns as a comic book is not interesting because like I, I mean that. That's why, like, <laughs> I, I think many would. I think most people disagree. I yeah. think most Claremont but, but fans, me, and given and, you know, how well like, regarded this run is, that is interesting. Absolutely, I want to see the lives of these mutants. Right, and there's obviously a balance here where it is. It does become like, hey, these are our forever properties, right? Like Marvel and superhero comics. What we do on this show is we cover forever properties. These are not ending. So you know, there there is a balance where you have to like live in that space where like these stories don't end, right? They they can't have a arc 
to them. Spider-Man doesn't have a arc. He has a million smaller arcs by different writers who come on and, you know, sure. cover him, right? But, like, yeah. Claremont, I feel like, is doesn't have arcs necessarily planned, like, in, in a... a I, I don't know. Like, I mean, clear, he has... Well, he did. No, he has I, story. He has story. I mean, there are clear planned. story arcs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like you said, like him just being like, yeah, every two weeks I'm just putting out a new X-Men story and it's just like the continuing adventures of the X-Men without like a larger idea of what he's saying with these characters or like what, what he wants to explore with it. I, I just, and it, maybe, maybe he totally is and it's just failing to come across to me, but I, I think that's like my problem with this. But you know what, like... I still enjoyed this. Like, I liked reading this. I was not, uh, you know, disinterested in this. Like, I, I still think he's got big ideas, and it's just insane the amount of uh, material he is churning out for the rest of X-Men writers for all time to work with, right? Like, people are still yeah. bouncing off of I his ideas 30 years later, of course, right? Because he just pumped so many <laughs> new ideas into this. I just... Sometimes I think he's going to start these ideas, and other people are probably going to take it and find the core of what's interesting about it, and, like, find a good arc for... Asian Betsy. Um, and it, it is interesting, too, I think, to consider if you compare Claremont's X-Men and the criticism that you're leveling against it here to modern X-Men, let's say, and a creator like a Jonathan Hickman who has taken over the franchise in 2021, yeah. the a huge part of the appeal of Hickman as a creator is the sense and the, and the proven track record of, oh, he's taking this to a place. I he has a plan, right? And with Claremont, I think what you're feeling is the black hole of a, a creator being like, I'm going to take it where it takes me and I'm yeah. going to buy the seat of my pants totally. and we're going to go. And it's like, he, I don't buy at this point that Claremont knows where he's taking X-Men. That might've been totally untrue. He might've been like, Oh yeah, I was going to do X, Y, and Z. I bet now in interviews, that's what he says. Yeah. Um, but definitely the post inferno landscape to me feels like, let's just see where it takes us. And you feel that as a reader. So I, I do get it's, that. I mean, I, it, we, I we talk that. about this on ultimate, my ultimate year with Brian Michael Bendis in that Spider-Man run where it's just like, I, I, it is a feat to be able to be on a comic for more than a handful of years and not feel like you kind of lose the thread because I, I just like that. That's why I'm almost always excited when I see a comic that I like and the writer's just like, yeah, I got 30 issues planned. I've got 45 issues planned. This is this comic runs this long. This is how long my run's going to be. How many how many interviews like that have you seen? <laughs> no, I, I know. But, you know, like <laughs> that never happens. But like Chew being like ending and being like, yeah, we're going to do 50 issues or whatever Chew ended on. I think 60. It's good for stories to have endings. I agree with you. And, generally. and superhero comics do not. Have and they don't. Luxury. But I do appreciate like I, I, I always uh, I always feel like it is a strong indicator that I'm going to like the whole run when I see that a popular series where the writer is like, yeah, I got a there's about another year left to this. Right. Like it's been going strong for three years. It could probably run. Yeah. It's not run out of steam, but I'm done in a year because I'm about done with what I want to do with this. Right. Because I mean, I don't think most creators of this era had that sensibility. No, I mean, Frank Miller yeah, does it. It's not Frank Miller does it. And I don't know how much of that was him recognizing. Clearly, it's a good thing to get out yeah. while the getting's good. Uh, versus just he wanted to do other things. I don't know. That's that's a contemporary sensibility. It totally is. And it, I would it, say it is. And it's also a. Um, this is from an artistic point of view versus a economical point of view, which is like, what is he going to give up his his job yeah, yeah. and his fame? Because, you know, maybe he does not have the uh, the same master plan he did 10 years ago. Right. Like, well, plus, like if you're Claremont and you say and you have turned X-Men ends biggest, with Inferno, yeah. Marvel's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you end with Inferno. Exactly. See ya. Yes. They kick him yes. out the door. Exactly. So what is what is the upside there for him? Yeah. So to, to um, be clear, yeah. this is very much a, you know, a critique of the work and not of Claremont. Right. Like. I, I would not blame him for staying on it five years past when he ran out of ideas 
personally, you know, I might not like the work, but you know, even if he's just staying on it because it's a job, okay, whatever. That's you know, get, get... I don't think that's the case. I, no, I don't think so. I don't think too. so either. I'm just saying, like that. That is, you know, it it, it is not the the assumption I want to make um, about about anyone. And you know, also, it feels totally fair. You know, he he doesn't owe writing. He doesn't owe me to write good X Men comics or X Men comics that I love, <laughs> instead of leaving before when he gets tired. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so. All right, let's continue with Acts of Vengeance here. We're, we're deep into this podcast already, so I want to move fast yeah, please. through uh, a bunch of these. I would say, so we read Punisher 28 and 29. Yep. We read Daredevil 275 and 276. These are respectively we can, Punisher vs. Doctor Doom and Daredevil yeah. vs. Ultron. <laughs> they are both great concepts. They are both executed very very well i, I think Daredevil i don't is. want I to Punisher really is. go into super detail about these other than to say i highly recommend reading them especially nascenti yeah yeah Daredevil, Daredevil I, Ultron. it's so good punisher's about as fun as you think it's like doom gets in punisher's face to prove a point to kingpin uh punisher steals some of his which he art. which doom demands basically doom demands kingpin allow him to fight punisher but not in those words, right? He's like, yep. like he makes fun of Kingpin. He's like, Punisher's taking you down. Kingpin's like, I'm fine, whatever. And he's like, Doctor oh, I, like, I oh, so your... you dare me to fight him? You dare me to fight him? <laughs> he's like, I looked at your like, no, balance I don't care. sheets. He was your biggest expenditure in last in 1989. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, Doom and then, clearly and wants Punisher to Punisher getting Punisher. back at him by stealing his like, uh, you know, the crown jewels, which is a Fabergé egg. It's very fun. Um, yeah, shouts to Mike Barron, Bill Reinhold for that story. Uh, the, it's the most, the, probably the most I like Punisher issues since Circle of Blood. Punisher has two ongoings right now. That's bonkers to me. He's got because I got, He's got conf- Punisher and Punisher War yeah, Journal. Cause, yeah, because I, I got mixed up for a minute and I couldn't find the other one. Um, but uh, all right, so Daredevil two seventy five and two seventy six, I think are great, especially because this is by a country mile the most I have liked Ultron. Uh, and yeah, he makes yeah. Ultron cool. I have never thought Ultron is cool or interesting whatsoever so far. I mean, like, I like some of the plot stuff of Ultron being, uh, like, the dad of Vision and, uh, like, the, the weird... I, I, I'm weirdly into all that, like, Vision-Human-Torch continuity. I, I don't know why that, that's yeah, kind of tickles That's me. one of the funniest things that you're into, because I'm, I'm actually not I know, yeah, it's that, funny. Yeah. All, all that stuff really tickles me. Um, but, like, what he does here is Doctor Doom makes a new... Ultron 13 by mushing together the personalities of Ultron 1 through 12 and uh mm-hmm. and it's just a fun like identity crisis like Ultron's just walking around being like you know one of my Ultrons is a homicidal maniac one of them is a humanitarian the rest are kind of like yeah. messy robots meets a uh this inhuman girl called number nine who we meet here for the first time um and uh it's interesting it's it's mostly just Oh, it's it's more than interesting. Like it's super smart. It's, like Anna Sensi takes this con. She's she's so good yeah. on this run, and it's just like you know, it's a Daredevil book, but it's also like mostly it's a vehicle for her to explore just weird corners of Marvel and ideas of of what it is to be a person, what it is to be. I human. mean, not even to be a yeah, it's not so a superhero, smart. just to be a person. Like Daredevil is just like musing to himself about being emotional, empathetically exhausted here. Where he's just like, why can't I bring myself to care about like these people's problems? Like, there's just something wrong with me. Like, they're all having a hard time here, and I'm just trying to. Yeah. Like... And it's just like, damn, that is, you know, that's like a very relatable thing of just being like exhausted. Like your sympathy is exhausted, right? Like, and that people yeah. would feel guilt about that, right? Like, I, I'm too exhausted to deal with other people's problems, but I feel bad about not being able to do that. Like, all this stuff's great, and Ultron's excellent here, and yeah, t- totally recommend this, and it. Yeah, go go find two seventy five because it's not in Marvel. Unlimited. We, we got to point out two seventy five is weirdly not in Marvel Unlimited. This finding. is again yeah. Marvel Unlimited's greatest 
greatest sin at this point yeah. is not including the entirety of Nascenti and JRJR's Daredevil run. I said this before we started, Zach. This would not be the case if Anne Nascenti was not a woman. Throwing it out there. Throwing it out there. Throwing it at you, Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, and Marvel I, I don't know Again, I we shouldn't just blame Marvel that, Unlimited, like, the digital app. We shouldn't just blame them yeah. because this means that these these issues were not collected. The collected department is to blame there. Marvel Editorial is to blame there. An, they have not been digitized in the way properly not... where Marvel Unlimited doesn't have them to use. Yeah. So don't just blame Marvel Unlimited. It is not entirely their fault. This run is great. It should be canonized. It should be collected. It should be digitized. The fact that it is not still, yeah. still, you don't see this with acclaimed runs written by men. It's true. It's definitely it's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good argument. It is hard to argue with. Um, what's not hard to argue with, because it stinks... Fantastic Four, three thirty-four through three thirty-six. <laughs> There's no arguing with this, Dave. How, it's uh, it's a real. How dare snoo- you? It's a how could you fest. not like these? You have no heart. That I think the problem here is you okay, have no so heart. Okay, so let me let me say You're, it's three I, sizes too small. I think this small. is a fun idea. The, the idea. It's a very fun idea. The idea is that okay. Well, no, I think them going in front of the U.S. House Subcommittee on like superhumans is uh not maybe it's an okay idea um. But it's not that interesting. Like, the actual arguments they make are pretty boring, and I feel like there's no snap or, like, dynamism to the actual conversations and the, the debate here. That it, You just described yourself. It works. Oh, oh, damn. No snap or dynamism. <laughs> damn it. No snap or dynamism. Um, should, I, we should mention, before we get into the arguments before the subhouse committee, is uh, another part of the Acts of Vengeance plot here is not only like, yeah, we're going to throw villains you don't expect at you, but also we're going to try and pass some legislation that is proto-Civil War, that is registering superhuman activity. That's actually an undercurrent here, and the Fantastic Four become ones to testify against that, because they're Marvel's first family. Yeah, and yeah, I just, like, I could not, I could not find myself getting interested in the conversation with the, like, the subcommittee. Like, I I don't know, he just doesn't, uh, he doesn't make that, like, conversation interesting. What is fun, and got a big big belly laugh from me is the the idea like throughout this uh, it starts out with the beetle who's like a 60s villain i remember um yeah. like attacks the the baxter building and then immediately is like put down by the uh, the security system and like he basically like smashes into the window and it's just like oh get you uh, uh, and passes out and then yeah. throughout their whole like trip to congress and while they're in congress all these like d-tier supervillains keep coming in one at a time throwing off their trench coats and being like the Fantastic Four need to die, and I'm the one to do it. And then immediately get, you know, like, the thing just hits them once and they fall unconscious. It, it It's very funny, but you don't quite get what's going on until um, she, <laughs> she thing, which is, God, I don't even know if I can get into she thing and how absolutely disinterested I am in she thing. I, like, cannot find You haven't read enough she thing to have an opinion one way or the other. I can't. Read more Sharon, and then you can tell me how you feel. Okay, yeah, f- fair enough. Uh, but like, yeah, every time she's here, I'm just like, yeah, but Ben's right there. Just, I don't get it. Um, (laughs) yeah, but Ben is human Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but (laughs) one of these villains runs into the room, into Congress, they knock him down and she's like, Hey, all these guys just have, uh, have sunglasses and trench coats on. Should I point out that there's four guys in the back with trench coats and trench coats and sunglasses on? And then like whirlwind armadillo and you know like baron brimstone all throw off their trench coats and run forward. Yeah. that is that's very funny that that idea of the uh all the d-tier villains being like compelled by this uh this aggression enhancer to to, to fight them is uh is really good 
It's great. Yeah, you get all the D-tier villains that's, like up against really the Fantastic fun. Four. They win easily every time. It's a really good gag. Yeah, I think that's a great the gag. one thing that I know I, Walt Simonson as a writer, he's very good at concepts and gags and having fun in a very playful there's a very there's an 80s comedy vibe obviously we read some damage control here as part of this as mm-hmm. well this sort of late 80s into the early 90s wholesome kind of like goofy comedy vibes that simonson brings to fantastic four that it will begin to feel antiquated it, as we oh, move into the rob so liefeld i mean especially and the mcfarland's i appreciate it i enjoy it, it because yeah. it, again it's like it's not super easy to do it's not super easy to be that wholesome and that goofy yeah. and playing the comedy up instead of trying to do big serious you know yeah, big we, bad we you know fantastic yeah. four story yeah it's good it, it's it's an, a fun approach i enjoy it they aren't remarkable issues but it's it's a fun way to sort of take all the the gravitas out of the event while still playing along with just it, just one more know? swing at old wall here these cu- it, the art is mostly fine i think it's rich buckler throughout but simon rich buckler's a really good artist. yeah the artist is pretty the art's pretty good um the covers mm-hmm. are all Walt Simonson, and they are some of the absolute worst covers we've ever seen. <laughs> They're terrible, terrible covers. I'll I'll actually give you the covers are not. Uh, I I don't think Walt. Si- I don't know. He's, I, it, you might have a point if your if your point was I don't like his covers. I might agree with you because there there might you know be what? something I actually, to that. I, I have Although one I like of his, his covers. I have um I have some of his covers hanging up on my wall. Like I have the the Beta Ray Bill issue on my wall. I love that cover. Well, uh, obviously on Thor. Yeah, I, no, I guess his, more. I mean non non Thor stuff. X-Factor I don't know. Like his X Factor and X of Vengeance. A few times you pointed this out where I've been like, yeah, these covers. I can't defend these. <laughs> these aren't. These aren't. Three thirty six is one of the weirdest. Like it barely looks like a cover. It looks like someone like clipped half the image. Intention. It's like intentionally as a joke, but like. Everybody's off screen, but it just doesn't it doesn't work. Um, yeah, that's like that's like the thumbnail I would do in PowerPoint with like no creative sensibility or, or technical prowess. It, the, the thing is that like it, we don't have to get into it too much is it, the thing I always like usually praise him for is the big splash page in Thor. Right. Like I, I think his like, yeah, big right. splashy splashy flash splashy splash page flashy splash. That's, page. That, that's the comics inside splashy, splash, 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 splash page. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what happens at the end of uh, of um, three thirty six when Hydro Man and Water Wizard burst into the room. You get the splashy splash page. Mm-hmm. Um, oh come on, that joke was pretty good. I smiled. Okay, well, no, the the audience didn't hear that. Oh, take a picture, <laughs> send it out. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that that like Thor issue. The, I mean, my favorite work of his is that one that's all splash pages. So you just kind of think he'd be a little better at these covers. But um, all right, so Amazing Spider Man. We read a few of these pretty unremarkable to me um yeah tard mcfarland comes back on and it's a little fun but without him it really suffers and uh oh i i don't know that that's the problem i mean you have colleen duran this is actually pretty loaded artistic roster you've colleen duran on 326 then you get eric larson on 328 and 330 and then you get uh tom mcfarland coming back for a hulk story in 329 these are all three like major major art players in uh i I didn't i don't think i really like colleen duran she had like is, I'm guessing is she. Um, I like I like her. Um, uh, I like her panel layouts and her comedic sensibilities. Yeah, her, her panel layouts. I don't really think nice she has the. She doesn't have the sketching and the penciling that McFarlane brings to the table. But again, it's very, it's very simple in a way that like I almost never think something is too simple. You know, because I'm almost always like, I'd rather you just draw this a little simpler and make it easier to read. This red is like almost too simple to me. But again, it's it's one issue. I'm not, you know. I disagree. Yeah. I disagree. Okay. Um, I, I think probably the, 
The best of the bunch here for me is 329 because it brings in Sebastian Shaw and some weird X-Men Sentinel Project Nimrod stuff. But again, like... Oh, right. No, Spider-Man's, we, Spider-Man's fine. We, we do have to talk about... <laughs> we, we don't need... Yeah, he fights... Uh, he fights Hulk at the behest of Sebastian Shaw. He fights... Yeah, he fights Joe Fixit. We like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he fights Magneto, which is, which is fine enough. But... <laughs> Magneto thinks he's a mutant, which is interesting. Yeah. The, the whole issue at the end here is that Spider-Man all of a sudden has a million new powers... Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is during the uh, Captain Universe uh, Spider-Man phase. <laughs> right. I have, I have I, no. I idea gloss what... over it uh, here and in my mind yeah, because I just kind of pretend it didn't happen. Spider-Man is just like, oh man, I can control my webs, and basically like, like his. Yeah, he starts flying. He, he gets he starts, like indestructible powers. He starts flying. He starts blasting <laughs> like thing. energy rays. He he can start like damn near invulnerable when he's blasting. Like he can that. start. F- <laughs> exactly. Uh, don't come in, mom. I'm blasting. Uh, <laughs> He, he, like, he can form the webs into, like, any configuration, so he just, like, sprays a bunch of webs and then turns them into a giant baseball bat to hit the Hulk. He punches Hulk into space. He just punches Hulk once, and Hulk goes into orbit, literally. It could have left him in orbit, too. Yeah. It could have been the end of the Hulk in orbit, yeah. Yeah, so it's just, it's very strange, and then the reveal is just, like, a cosmic entity named Captain Universe has possessed you, and, uh, uh, I don't know what to think of this. (laughs) It's very strange. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to even deign to explain Captain Universe. Oh, it Universe. comes from it's a weird. Uh, it's from the Enigma Force, I think. I'm looking it up now, um, it's and it's going to. It's going to like enter into a variety of Marvel heroes throughout history. This is when it enters in Spidey. I think the majority, like you would have to read the spectacular Spider-Man yeah, stuff because yeah, it'll yeah. explain they, some of that as they, well. They keep putting notes um, in it. If you I are so inclined, not into it enough to, to switch. Can I just point out the Wikipedia page has this sentence: "There is no apparent pattern in Captain Universe's appearances." or accomplishments <laughs> yeah it's no it's it's pretty random throughout marvel history um yeah so okay. all right so that is yeah, spidey yeah. and uh next up on the on the uh acts of engines docket the last one we read is damage control one to four which again like oh, basically did, continues the Dwayne mcduffie and ernie colin uh written and drawn series like it's just a it's a tour through marvel it's a tour through acts of vengeance it continues to be very very uh successful i think at being just like hey what if we did a goofy sitcom through the marvel universe of this construction crew during the acts of vengeance it ties into a prison break at the vault which is kind of how the acts of vengeance kicks off in avengers spotlight number 26 which is not in marvel unlimited it takes all of the all of the gumption out of punisher it's a very good sort of satire of punisher in these comics as well. And then it does a good She-Hulk. It does a good Jumper and She-Hulk. Uh, recommend it. Recommend this for us, you many. Again, like the first, I wouldn't say it is amazing. They aren't my favorite comics, but I really appreciate what they're trying to do. Um, I did not notice that you added this to the list, so <laughs> I did not read these. Um, I'll put. Oh, I'll make sure these are on the list for the, uh, the backers, Get, uh, which is probably just as well because we have to we have to wrap this up. But the uh, the vault. Literally the only time we hear about it, which is fairly often now, is because someone broke out of it. Like, its reputation is already yeah, the, like, yeah. Arkham Asylum of this world where it's just like, yeah. Uh, Should have been reconfigured immediately. Every every time it is mentioned, it's just people. like, yeah, this uh, this guy broke out of the vault. I never hear about it in any context except of people breaking out, which is like yeah. four times in the last year. Yeah. Uh, so, big yeah. picture, I mean, Fun. I think Acts of Vengeance yeah. is actually... It's pretty successful. I mean, sure. I actually like I like the big umbrella of like, hey, here's kind of a theme 
You don't have to follow an exact event, but here's the theme we're going for. I think it, it does kind of miss out from like a bookend, like Alpha and Omega style issue yeah. of the villainous cabal. Yeah. Like it, like when those villains do show up, because basically throughout every Accident Vengeance issue, there's a chance that you're going to get like all the villains at the round table discussing their schemes, and you know, and mostly yeah. they'll just be like, and we need to enact our acts of vengeance. Bum, bum, bum. Um, but you don't really get a tight... Like, okay, wait, what are they really doing? And, like, a focus in on them? It's kind of missing. Um, again, read West Coast Avengers 55 if you want, like, kind of how this ends mm-hmm. when it's revealed. Loki's kind of pulling the strings and this and that. Uh, but, again, I, I I like the general idea. Um, it remains kind of frivolous. It remains kind of empty because of the fact that it doesn't have, like, a structure core narrative. Yeah, I mean, I it's... Even if it literally is just like a, a editorial mandate of just like, hey, this year, 1990 or whatever, I guess this is a lot of 89, but like in this year, we all want you to cross over your villains. If there's no plot reason for it, if it was just kind of like the editorial vibe, that'd be fine and fun, you know? Like, I'd, I'd still be behind that, just kind of like mixing things up for the year. Uh, I, I like the centering. No, I, 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 I do too. I like having just a framing like, device. I think that helps. I, I think it's it kind of works on its own and like... W- I didn't read the wrap-up issue. I didn't read that West Coast Avengers, and I'm not kind of like, oh man, I feel like I'm really missing something. You know, like I feel you you aren't totally, but again, if you're kind of a completionist and you kind of want that feel, yeah. I mean, I it's it's a pretty decent comic, I think as well. You know, is another reason to check it out. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's not it's not like oh my gosh, how does Axe of Vengeance end? It just never has that that vibe to it because like, what is the story you're looking to conclude? Yeah. Like, did the villains beat the heroes? Like, yeah, we know. You know. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, next. Next week, we're going to be talking about a couple Excaliburs, some New Mutants, and Uncanny X-Men, including Gambit and Cable coming in. Pretty exciting. Um, yeah, this is a pretty big... Uh, this is where we truly, truly go 90s. Yeah, sure. They, yeah, those <laughs> those are very when it takes off. 90s associated yeah. characters for me. And I'll try to, uh, I'll try to like, think about Jim Lee a little more. I don't think I, like, quite nailed down, like, my thoughts about him. Because he's such a big player that I think it'll be worth, like... You came in swinging. No, no, on I like I like Jim. one of the biggest artists oh of his generation. Well, just because he's big doesn't mean and, that uh, he, it was. He's immune from my my body blows, as Walt Simonson has, yo, has learned. Man, he, but no, I, I'm, the not, Zach I'm not Dean negative. Body blows. He's coming for you, artist. I am not negative on Jim Lee. I think I'm a little negative on his style. This episode begs to on differ. Style do- his style dominating. Uh, from other people's perspective, although also like by the 2000s, I get kind of bored with his style, but. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he 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 works in a time and place. There, like uh, All Star Batman and Robin, that comic is much his most acclaimed work. Yeah, but no, I know, but that that work much worse off for him being on it. Like one of the worst examples of like a, a uh, the, the content. Yes, yeah, so you could you could say the same about Frank Miller, but that wouldn't mean I didn't like his Daredevil. That's very that's very true. Um, yeah, that that is actually that is not his fault at all. <laughs> so yeah, Jim no. Lee, cool, cool, nice guy. I think I don't know. I... <laughs> Jim, if you're listening, I love you, baby. He, he is a big listener, yeah, I, and I don't think he's going to be pleased with this episode, Jim. I'm sorry. Let's talk. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to I'll try here. to bring a little bit more cohesive thoughts about him uh, next time. Well, and just in general, if you could try that, just a little more cohesive <laughs> yeah, very, across the board, very that fair, would be very great. Fair. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We are My Marvelous Year. You can find my stuff at Comic Book Herald online. You can find his at My Marvelous Year on social. Music for the show is by Disaster Piece. You can support the show at patreon.com slash mymarvelthisyear. Please rate and review. If you made it all this way to the end of the episode, you're a diehard fan, and we appreciate you. A rating and a reviewing on iTunes would help us a great deal. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next year. See you next year. Uh-huh.